For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to a special guest episode of That Trippy Show. One of the reasons we have guests on is to offer a different perspective on what's going on right now, or in other cases, someone who's been working on something important or different that you may not know about. This week, we welcome someone who's been working on tackling one of the most critical issues of our time, election security, to try to safeguard our elections, renew faith in our electoral process, um, Greg Miller, uh, co-founder of the OSIT Institute. Uh, welcome, Craig. Hey, thanks a lot, Joe. God, just great to be here. We met each other long before this, but I think the, the period that I was most struck and worked with you the closest was in 2017 when uh, XPRIZE named me the bold innovator for democracy to pull a team together. And I just wanted to read you, uh, go down memory lane and read you the XPRIZE democracy teams, uh, what we were doing. The team focused on saving democracy, preserving and strengthening self-government. Their impact proposal addresses threats to democracy beginning with the ability for every eligible citizen to vote and to trust and verify their vote that has been counted. I remember... You know, it was probably in a lot of ways, I think that was the the worst defeat of my political career um, because you were a, a great member of the team. We really had uh, addressed a lot of the problems that we're now seeing today and that you've been working on for decades. And we lost to the Alzheimer's team that was out to cure Alzheimer's. I'm all for that. You were all for that. But we we all knew that we were going to lose <laughs> lose that vote uh, for where the money would be spent. And I, I now look back and look at where we are today. That was 2017. Had we had we won that and gotten a lot of the funding that was needed to to cure some of these deals. But you've been working on it. I want to I want to get into your work uh, since then and where you think we are today. Yeah, sure. So so I guess on the one hand, the not so good news is we're not very much further today than we were five years ago. Uh, from from the perspective of of elections jurisdictions and and you know hanging tough with with the gear that they have, um, for us at the institute and the Trust the Vote project, we've actually made tremendous progress. Um, we're getting to a window where we can actually see a finish line to have a, a brand new voting system that's based on open source technology that's publicly owned that's prepared for certification, uh, which would then avail itself for for adoption, adaptation, and deployment. So from that perspective, we're doing well. Um, I think the real problems are what's going on with the existing infrastructure and the continued threats, and now magnified um, for a couple of different unfortunate reasons. So where do you, I mean, are you talking about um, just the time between now and election to get things in place, or, or, or are there things citizens can do today? I mean, I'm just trying to get it to a, a practical place for our listeners in terms of what you think 
realistically can be done between now and November 22 of anything. And then obviously this is a long-term push to, to, to save the democracy and to get people trust in their election system again. Yeah, to, to to build out a new infrastructure that's actually deployed is a longer arc here. You know, that's a that's a that's a two to four, maybe five year window. Um, we're making progress. There are things that can be done in the meantime, and should be, and have to be, um, for voters in in this this upcoming cycle. Um, the single most important thing will be making certain that their registration's in place, making certain that nothing has happened to it or any changes have occurred in in the processes they're used to and likely changes will have occurred. Um, and, and that's going to be just require a lot of, you know, boots on the ground vigilance from the get out the vote community uh, to the voters themselves. Can technology help there? Sure. We, we've got some technology that can help people know uh, if their voter record has changed. We call that vote ready. Um, you know, we work extensively with third party voter registration platforms. Um, we provide the technology for the vast majority of those platforms like Rock the Vote um, and, and other organizations that uh, that that go out there and do that field level work, um, and we're gonna, we're continuing to work vigorously on that technology. How does somebody check Vote Ready to see if they if, if something's changed? Uh, and, and, and we should point out here that in a lot of these states, there's purging of voter rolls going on, or uh, you know, change of address was mailed out to people, and that the, the the they didn't return it, and the different reasons a state may take somebody or change their voter registration. States are being much more uh, aggressive about this in many areas of the country, and so you should. Uh, make I think Greg's point here is you should make a point of of knowing what your registration status is. So Greg, Greg, could you go into how somebody might do that? Um, where would they go on online, et cetera? Yeah, I can't I can't overemphasize that that's the one thing that everyone uh, uh, can do and and not wait until the last minute. Where last minute means you know a month before the election. Uh, you have to be at it much sooner than that. Um, for, for us, for the Vote Ready technology, it's nearly complete. We've been using sort of the back end of that service uh, in concert with uh, folks like Rock the Vote, um, which basically the back end goes out and periodically examines the voter rolls to see what changes have been made between the last time they looked and today. And if they see that that folks have been uh, flagged for suspension or removal altogether, then they can message that that voter and say, hey, let's, listen, we just noticed that there was a change to the voter rolls that may affect you. Um, the front end of that is a is an app that could that could work on your mobile device. Um, big challenge there, of course, is not everybody has smartphones. Um, we have to remember that. For those that do have smartphones, this is great. For those that don't, they have to rely on other organizations who can help them. Um, but what you have to do, uh, regardless of whether there's a technology there to assist you or not, is you need to get in touch with your state. You need to to go to your state's website. Um, most states uh, are working towards online voter registration. A few have been sort of uh, dragging tail on that. Um, but contacting uh, your local um, election registrar is going to be the most important thing to do to check your record to make sure that you're, uh, you're currently up to date. Greg, you mentioned a two to four year arc. Can you, for, for those who are not as, as involved with this project, can you kind of just explain what that arc looks like and what you're trying to do? Absolutely. Um, we've spent the last 10 years working from the ground up to completely re-engineer, redesign, and develop a, a platform of election technology. And that platform is called ElectOS. 
ElectOS is for voting machines like Android is for smart devices, okay? So we're, we've been engineering that from the ground up, and we're now to a point where we, we call it design engineering complete. We're ready to build the production version of that technology and get it federally certified and then certified in at least one state. The window to finish that now is down to about 16 months. Uh, so we, we have about 16 months worth of work left to do um, in, in a very concerted fashion. And by that, I mean that over the last decade, a lot of this work has been done by volunteers, a small staff. There is about 70 of us in total. Um, and it's taken a lot of time because we had to literally start from the ground up. Nobody was going to tell us how voting machines work, and we certainly couldn't reverse engineer them. All that heavy lifting aside, now we've, if we can get about a dozen folks working full time, you know, six days a week, you know, 50 hours a week, whatever, we have, a, we have an engineering plan that says we can have that code ready for, for certification in about 16 months. So that's, that's the arc of it, of where we are. We're now down to that. It's like the, the last quarter of the game, if you will. Um, but it's the most important quarter, and it's where we can't do it uh, as, a, as a moonlighting exercise or volunteer exercise. We now need to have everybody in the same camp working full-time on it. So, Greg, one of the things I want to talk about a little bit again, getting back to what's happening now, again, because of the arc of actually, you know, fixing and building voting mechanism that, that restores trust. The the thing we do face today, though, obviously, and I just want to get your perspective on it, are how different things that are occurring that are, you know, destroying trust in elections. I mean, whether it's the rhetoric of, of, of our politics of the time, but also these post-election audits and reviews, the, the you know, the, the way some states are moving command and control away from uh, traditional secretaries of states and other traditional nonpartisan mechanisms and putting the vote counting in partisan hands. I hate, you know, where Trump recently uh, quoted Stalin saying it doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the votes. I think there's a lot of concern out there about that. Where where do you see things? You know, in in, in a post twenty twenty post Dominion world, as I like to say, we're we're being besieged by uh, the most vigorous and vociferous disinformation misinformation campaign um, I've ever experienced in this space. We we all you, you'll recall, Joe, that one of the one of the most uh, stark and jolting. Uh, things that we did at the X Prize was uh, was show that slide uh, of that quote from from Sergei Shoyov, who was the Russian defense minister, and was was uh, was briefing Putin and the brass. And when he was asked um, how the progress of the cyber warfare against the Western Hemisphere was proceeding, he he closed out by saying, uh, "The oracle has been poisoned. Trust shall be destroyed." Yes, um, absolutely. And that was a really just jolting statement, but it is working. Today, um, there is so much misinformation that was that, that created Stop the Steal and the Big Lie um, that is now giving rise to legislation, large amounts of it just, just simply unnecessary, um, brought about by the, uh, the, the growth of vote by mail that was necessitated by the COVID pandemic. Um, and so now... Um, we see all kinds of things happening um, as folks who are, are showing fealty to the former president and, and, and that movement, which it's no longer red and blue, right? And you know yeah. this far better than I. It's now about pro-democracy. And these are folks who are not acting in a pro-democracy way. Um, and so they're doing post-election reviews and they're calling them audits or worse, they're calling them forensic audits, which by the way, for your audience is not a thing. Um, 
And so with that combined with this notion of, of, of shifting the responsibility of elections away from its current traditional infrastructure back into the state houses, um, it's as you say, it's it's really going to be a matter of who, who's counting the vote versus versus anything else. And that's that's deeply troubling. I mean, one of the things that's interesting that we've discovered in our years of work uh, here at the OSIT Institute, which is which is international in nature, by the way, we have lots of work um, in, in Canada and, and Europe and Latin America. Most democracies, parliamentary to be precise, have something called an election management body, an EMB. And they are an independent organization funded by all the parties and the government, and they're independently responsible for administering elections in their entirety. In the United States, in this representative democracy, almost the opposite is true. We have elected officials who who who, who uh, comprise the, the the secretaries of state offices for the states, uh, and there are a lot of elected positions in around the command and control of elections. This brings about a partisan flavor. Um, which which is causing, I think, um, uh, what we're seeing now. Um, it's it's spiraling out of control, which is uh, uh, tough words. But in fact, every time we turn around, I mean, we, we witnessed this last weekend, the concept in Arizona and four other states now to create something called anti-counterfeit ballots, which is a complete solution in search of a problem, right? Counterfeit, anti-counterfeit ballots are not going to stop vote fraud. So um, it is spinning a little bit out of control. And uh, I'm, I'm not... I'm, it's unfortunate news. I don't have a good answer for that other than to say we're just going to have to hunker down and maintain vigilance um, with making sure people are registered and they get out to the polls and they cast their ballot. They're going to put hurdles up. They're clearly doing it. That you know, I mean, it's it is, and it's all done under the guise of election integrity. But as you point out, anti-counterfeit ballots are in search of a problem that doesn't exist. What that all means is you, we have to swamp them at the ballot box. I mean, people have to know that they're registered, have a plan to vote, make sure they can get there and make sure, you know, if they've shortened the early voting or taken the number of drop-off boxes to zero or one, like they have in Houston, that make a plan. Uh, if that's how you did it last time, make a plan this time on how you're going to deal with that. Uh, and have organizations out there uh, working with people to make sure they can get to the polls because, um, there are going to be hurdles, but we're going to have to work that much harder uh, to defeat those hurdles. And the best way is to make sure your vote is you, you get to exercise the franchise and can vote. Then we do have to worry about the people counting the ballots. But that's uh, that that is a problem. I think that uh, that that so far courts have been at least looking like they'll hold the line there. But we'll see. The word just keeps coming back to me over and over again is transparency, transparency in process. And the, the, uh, another important thing that we, the people, have to do is demand the transparency in that process. Right. Because the more obscurity there is around it, the, the, the less you're going to be able to trust it. I mean, let's remember, trust is the product of transparency times communication. If they're not telling you what they're doing and not letting you see how it's done, there's no reason to trust it. And that's going to breed more problem. Absolutely. And I think you're right, though. That's making sure that there's transparency in the vote counting process is going to matter a lot, particularly where they've changed these rules on who can count and may have put partisans at the table instead of uh, either multiple parties overseeing it and counting it or and verifying what's going on. We did see that in 2020 with the cameras in a lot of the voting 
vote counting areas. And, and I think that transparency really did help. Well, at least having members of all parties present, right? If you're yeah. going to have one party there, the other party needs to have a, a an equal uh, amount of observation. And so have have those observers, that's fine. But but do it in an orderly manner that also protects the safety and the integrity of the process, right? I mean, we're another whole subject is just watching the volume of qualified elections workers who are fleeing the profession because they're just tired of the death threats for for God's sake, which is just is still completely un-American and and not pro uh, pro democratic, uh, pro democracy by any stretch. But education, I just want to come back to this thing about transparency. Part of this is also education. Your show. The Trippy Show, what we're doing at the OSIN Institute and the Trust of Vote Project, we have got to help people understand how elections actually work and cut the creaking. Greg, you mentioned earlier, and and we were emailing back and forth about one of the things that maybe people don't realize that Joe and I have talked about a lot in the last couple of weeks is the importance of some of the state especially state elections and local elections, because one of the things that I know you're worried about is it's not just about uh, the voting, actual counting the votes, but it's it's goes back to Joe's point about who's counting the votes. It's not so much secretaries of state anymore. Some of these really partisan legislatures are, are kind of seizing some of the power away from what I'd call traditional impartial mechanisms. Indeed. I mean, uh, and, and we have to be mindful of what is happening uh, at the local and state level. That's always been the case. It's often overlooked because of the glamour and publicity and visibility of a, of a presidential uh, or even a congressional election. But yet the action is in the state houses and the action is in the secretary of state's offices. I mean, uh, look at Arizona. You've got a guy named Mark Finchman who's, who's running for office there, who was a, a huge pro, uh, proponent of Stop the Steal and the Big Lie um, he likes to sport uh, a large Trump endorsement uh, banner on his uh, on his website. But all that partisan stuff aside, what concerns me is, is that you have folks who are deciding they're going to run for this very important office, the state secretary, which, by the way, Joe, this is something you would know. I'm not sure, but I believe in, in Arizona, there is no lieutenant governor. And so, oh, by the way, the state secretary serves also as the lieutenant governor, which even ups the ante even more uh, on that race. But be that as it may... Mark is not an elections professional, as evidenced by this this crazy legislative proposal now to to do, you know, like the way they watermark currency. You know, you take the hundred dollar bill and you put it up in the light and you look for the special markings. They're proposing to do that for ballots, uh, an enormously expensive process that isn't going to net them anything except that one edge case when somebody tries to slip a ballot into the into the batch that doesn't belong there. Right. And we've been through this there. It does occur occasionally, but we're talking like handful across the country. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff, nothing that uh, uh, that doing going to that expense is going to change anything material in terms of the outcome of the election. It's insane. Look at Georgia. Rassenberger found four ballots right. in 4.9 million. Right. And he counted what? Three times? Four times? Three, to- three times counted. 4.9 million. They found four ballots. Do you realize that five people in a million are struck by lightning? No, no. But <laughs> so, so, so you spend the money to watermark all those ballots uh, and, you know, to, to, okay. So they, we find there are 4.9 million, you know, valid ballots and four of them were, are, are not watermarked or how, you know, what, it's not going to be a, a, a big thing. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just leads more and more, 
I, I think it sort of sets up the conspiracy, of course, right? Um, we have watermark ballots. No one else does. What, how do you know in those other states? You know, I mean, it just sets up the uh, continuing yeah. erosion of, of trust in the process under the guise uh, of building trust because we watermark it. I mean, this is literally how they keep continuing to sort of destroy trust by, um, you, you know, by claiming that they're 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 doing it for under the guise of election integrity. Well, but what's crazy about things like that is this, you know, this well-intentioned effort actually makes things worse. I mean, for, for example, so, so now you have to have special stock for the ballots, right? right? So, so do election officials have the ability to detect if some stock is missing? And, and if so, then what next, right? And, and again, it, it, these documents, you know, we like to say that, that ballots are the currency of our democracy. That's a true statement. It's a nice metaphor. But again, it's been sort of twisted in with pretzel logic to say, oh, well, so shouldn't we trust, shouldn't we trust our ballots like we can trust our currency? Well, that would be fine, except that ballots are a transaction. They're not just a currency, right? I mean, if I hand you a hundred dollar bill, you can stick it up in the air and say, yeah, that's, that's a legitimate hundred dollar bill. You just gave me a hundred dollars, but the ballot is marked. It's not the ballot itself that's causing the fraud. It's the person who's marking the ballot that shouldn't be marking it in the first place. Right. And the ballot has nothing. Well, actually, the whole thing about the uh, anti-counterfeit ballots, uh, for me, uh, look, I've done a lot of work in Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been I've been in countries where what, some precincts get the right ballots with the right markings right. and other precincts get they're not watermarked. So these are all fraudulent ballots. And though, no, no, that would never happen under this system. No, no, he, he, I'm sure all the Hispanic, Latino, black precincts would get, the, I mean, we could be sure that everybody, all of us, the city precincts would all be getting the, the proper ballots uh, uh, the, the, with the proper markings on them. It just sets up a complete way to, to change it in a fundamentally dishonest way. Well, it causes a lot of chaos. I mean, and, yeah. and, and here's what's really funny about that. These folks, and this is happening, by the way, this is just Arizona. This is four, four different states, and other states are picking up on this idea quickly. Here's a basic problem that, that shows you why you have to have elections professionals running elections and not guys running for state secretary with no experience. There's something called the FWAB, the Federal Write-In Absentee Ballot. By law, every overseas and military voter or anybody has to have the ability to to access and use that type of a ballot um, for uh, uh, for casting a vote, and and the Help America Vote Act requires that. So the challenge here is is that watermarking ballots is only going to take care of a certain set of ballots. It's not going to solve the federal writing absentee ballot. It's not going to set, settle the fact that 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 disabled voters, a project that we're working on here at OSET, have to be able to print a ballot at home from a ballot marking device. So ballot marking device ballots aren't going to be covered. FWAB ballots aren't going to be covered. So you're only going to be covering a subset of these ballots, right? And so our technical people ask a really simple question. Why do all of that? All you need to do is insert one additional mark into the timing marks. Those little things that are on the edge of the ballot that the counters use. Yeah. And if you do that, the moment a ballot is inserted in there that doesn't have that registration mark, it's going to get ejected. 
That's a simple, no-cost solution because every timing mark is a configurable thing on ballots today. So that's you, there's ways to solve the problem, in other words, without introducing this whole taxpayer boondoggle of let's go put fancy colored stripes and holograms into ballots so that we feel comfy that these ballots were printed on expensive paper. And therefore, my gosh, we're not going to have any fraud. Yeah, it's crazy. That's the problem that we have here. It's that kind of misunderstanding of how things work that are causing this thing to kind of spiral out of control. We have an inconvenient truth here. We have something that the other side has weaponized so we can no longer legitimately talk about it. And that is the whole reason that we're calling for brand new voting election technology infrastructure. It's because the existing legacy stuff that we have is by design vulnerable. Now, we managed to plug all the holes in 2016, 2017 that, that could give rise to the kinds of trouble that we most fear. But the fact is these machines are so obsolete that innovation in this space amounts to a discussion of spare parts. And security strategy is patch and pray. We have got to stop spending money trying to hold this thing together. And yet now, post-2020, post them weaponizing the notion that there's vulnerabilities in equipment, if we go out and say to people... The machines have design flaws. We're called a conspiracy theorist. And that is a problem. We have to have an honest conversation yeah. that notwithstanding what we've done to protect stuff, we still need to replace it. Well, yeah. What most people do not understand uh, is that the bulk of the machines that were out there were all um, designed to deal essentially as a reaction to the Gore-Bush butterfly ballot problem right. um, in Florida. And, and so back then, most machines, there wasn't a whole lot of concern about hacking on the internet. or And so touch screens and all kinds of different ways right. uh, to make it easier to make sure you don't confuse the ballot. Yeah. And, and the hanging the hanging Chad is what this really was attacking, right? The whole Chad Fest of 2000. Well, 22 years later, not only is America suffer amnesia, but let's face it, most people say, What's right. with hanging of Chad? Yeah. Who committed that yeah. murder? No, no. Um, and so you have, uh, you know, the, the the you now have the machines hooked up to the internet, software driving them with many of them with no ballot backup, and they're very obsolete. Some of them are running on oh gosh, what what era of Microsoft, whatever. Well, well yeah, it's my, it's, yeah. it's Windows two thousand. That's terrifying. Um, is the is the is, is yeah. the operating system of choice. By yes, right. By a lot of by for a lot of equipment, Windows 2000. Um, there's been some update to the, uh, to that. I do want to I do want to make sure we're clear about one thing. We have done a damn good job of disconnecting yeah, machinery yeah. from the internet. So in the vast majority of cases, machines are not connected to the network. So there's no chance that there's any data traveling to Spain. Um, that's just not happening. But the fact that they still right. could be connected, if even for a second to go look up something, is what opens that door, that risk that a machine can become infected. Yeah, I was talking about the different threat environment between 2000, which was hanging oh, sure. chat, and, and, the, and you're now in 2020 connecting anything to the internet. It's a problem. I mean, there's all kinds of different problems that, 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 that come with the current machines that need to be updated and should be. And again, with paper backup and other things, if need be, I, I know. Look, you know, you and I have been talking about this since since the the X Prize team that we built together. And so I know, I absolutely know how committed you you are to this. That's why, that's why you're you were on that team. What? How, how do you get over that continuing threat? I mean, because it, it is both 
the domestic and foreign intervention that that you've got to guard against now, not a not a hanging Chad problem. Right, right. Well, I mean, the the the, the challenge that we have is that the equipment as deployed today was never designed or intended to be doing what it's doing today. And what it's supposed to do today, according to an agency designation uh, several years ago, um, is act as a national security asset. It's part of critical infrastructure. Well, if we're going to treat election infrastructure as critical infrastructure, it has to be redesigned for that type of a threat environment. Nobody in 2000, or even when they created the Help America Vote Act in 2002, nobody at the time was thinking about foreign intervention. No one was thinking about, you know, uh, folks in St. Petersburg find a way to tap into the networks and find the election management system PCs all over the nation. That just wasn't a requirement of the design engineering of equipment back then. It was the answer was use, t use desktop PCs and throw apps on top of them and we can go administer an election. But that's no longer the case. Today, we have got to rebuild that infrastructure that is verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent in process. That's the thing that election officials taught us is the, quote, vast mandate, V-A-S-T. And until we just do that and get that done, this rickety infrastructure we have is going to continue to rely on spare parts from from insecure supply chains in Southeast Asia and, you know, money to do cybersecurity patch and pray services. That's just not going to sustain this yeah. long time. And here's the here's the real problem, Joe. You know this. I don't actually need a, a an insidious type of attack like that, subversive attack. I just need there to be a belief that the attack could happen. And then I can sow right. the seeds of distrust that nobody can argue against because right. everybody says, see? And there's no way to verify it either way. And there's no there's no way to verify it. And this is exactly what the whole Dominion lawsuit is going through now. Their, their brand has been irreparably just damaged beyond repair, I think, um, by people asserting that things happened that didn't in fact happen. But because of the machine's design and the history behind them right. and the problems of unreliability they've had have just given them a terrible weak spot to to to, to attack. So one of the things I, you guys at OSET have been really working hard on coming up with the, 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 the infrastructure that will work and build that trust. But I think one of the things people need to understand a bit uh, is the, the funding necessarily, both on the private and government side over time to make this happen uh, because it, it, it takes millions of dollars, I think, for you guys to get a, a, a workable machine that can do, you know, can do what needs to hap happen and, with, and right. design privately. Then it has to go through certification and those things. But the other thing I think that, that most people, uh, again, going back to the 2000 problem with the hanging chad, the federal government responded to that with lots of money to the states so that they could get modern machines, uh, put them right. in place. Uh, right. The, the states have have totally run through all that money pretty pretty much. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. It's it's these multiple steps that have to happen. OSET and, and others need the money to take these the, the right system uh, to certification. And then at the same time, all of us need to hope that the, 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 the government will get these states in, you know, the money they need to implement a, a system that we can, that we can trust. Um, I just wanted to explain that to, to listeners, because I think it's important that our listeners uh, think about supporting what you're doing at OSIT. 
And so I'd like you, for you to, to talk a little bit about what you are doing now, the things you're doing at, at Trust the, the Vote Project. What can they get behind and, and help you build this, this movement to get this done? Sure, sure. Let me just say that that the problem with HAVA, the Help America Vote Act, and the and the millions of dollars that it, it set forth, nobody nobody thought about what happens when the machines wore out. Nobody looked beyond a five to seven year window, and so they 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 gave a whole bunch of money to buy machines, and now we're at the stage where all those machines are obsolete, not just antiquated, they're obsolete. We're running out of spare parts, right? So there there's a there's a cliff coming for dozens of states. Um, at which there's just they just can't any longer support what they've got. So we've been examining that and said, well, look, the way to get around this, because the challenge here of building verifiable, accurate, secure and transparent technology is something that the gov- federal government cannot take on. And there's no commercial incentive for the for the commercial sector to do it themselves. It just doesn't pencil out for them. The amount of money that they would have to spend to do that kind of research and development to really build fault tolerant um, you know, national security assets for voting machines, it's just it just doesn't pencil out for them. It, they can't get that return on investment, right? And so we came in and said, well look, what if we were to build a public layer of technology, what we now call the people's voting system. What if we built that technology through a public digital works project and gave it away, literally flooded the market with that technology to relevel that playing field? Now, each of those vendors have an opportunity to adopt that technology that the heavy lifting's done for them. We've taken it off their shoulders and they now can deliver much higher grade voting systems that are lower cost, more secure, easier to use, et cetera. Um, and if they don't want to do that because you know they just have a, a sort of a, a, a mentality that they'd rather live on the annuities of their current service agreements until they die, okay, others are going to enter that market. New entrants will come into that space. So the project here is designed to sort of disrupt and, and remake that industry, okay? This is the people's project. The only way that this this kind of technology is ever going to be out there and put to use is for the people to fund and build that project themselves. We've done all of the heavy lifting of the engineering, the research, the development. We have patents pending on this that'll be assigned to the public. We're building a true public repository of technology to force a massive disruption of that industry and create machines where we know our ballots are counted as cast. So the Trust the Vote project is the movement to make that happen, to, to, to fund and finish that final 16 months of work. And this is a chance for every voter in America to take a $25 gift and say, well, I can make it to my favorite candidate, or I can put it to this tax deductible project here so that I know that the ballots that I cast are going to get counted for my candidate. So it's a little insurance policy, if you will, that we can actually fix the underlying technology. This won't solve all the problems, but this is going to go a hell of a long way to getting us to a place where we can increase confidence in elections and their outcomes uh, in defense of democracy and, frankly, as a matter of national security. So the Trust the Vote project has really shifted from being inward looking at the elections community, right? We've been working with hundreds of elections officials for years on figuring out what are the requirements necessary to build a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent system. Now, the Trust the Vote project is facing the public. This is a we the people uh, effort. And so that's that's what that's about. And that's what we we know, and you know this as well as we do, if if we can get a, a fraction of those folks who care about their democracy enough to give money to their candidates 
to join this movement and become a part of this. Heck, we we plan to take the source code. The master source code base will be deposited at the U.S. National Archives. Every single donor's name is going to be in that code base. So how much do you need to, to raise to make it? What's your, your goal to, to try to get to to make this all, all happen, Greg? So yeah, we have, so we have two. We have we have the goal and a stretch goal, right? So the goal is what does it take to actually get the code finished and ready for certification? And if we do that, we think then other things happen to get it across sure. the finish line. And that goal is eight million dollars. That right. gets the code base finished. If we want to get the code base finished and get it certified, so then that we've 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 removed all barriers to adoption, that gets us to ten million. And if we want to look at the reach goal, like what would it take to do what, what Google did with Android, right? They built the code, they got out there, and then they spent several years getting literally worldwide massive adoption of it, right? So to get us to a point where ElectOS is the sort of preferred technology of choice for election administration on a not only national basis, but a global basis, that reach is 24 million. Um, which is which is like what you know this better than I. It's 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 equivalent to a a decent sized congressional seat cam- campaign. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna. Uh, that's why I asked the question because like well, we you know both parties will spend over two billion dollars each easily on a presidential uh, cycle for just the pre- just the top of the ticket. Forget about what happens uh, the the hundred million that uh, Jamie Harrison uh, uh, raised and spent in in South Carolina. I'm happy he got that money. That's not my uh, you know I. I I'm, I'm a supporter. Yeah, it. yeah, sure. But but yeah, but uh, 24 million or 8 million just to get things really going. To rebuild an, an infrastructure that has a generational impact. You know, around yeah. here, we have a campaign slogan of our own here that we call 24 for 24. And that says, you know how simple this is? If, if, if a million people gave a one-time membership of $24 to the Trust the Vote Project, we'd raise that $24 million. And that wouldn't be for just one campaign cycle. Yeah. That would be like a generational change agent. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't know where you got that idea. I just don't. I, so, some, somebody came up with it. Been, I said, let's run with it. <laughs> I've, just a uh, 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 full disclosure, I've been advi- a, a good friend and advisor of OSET and, and happy to to work with you guys on trying to build that uh, that groundswell movement out there because I think it is part of the real effort that has to be made to preserve and protect our, our democracy, and that's building trust in our voting integrity. Um, the one thing I want to get to before we sign off, because I just so love the name, is your <laughs> new podcast, Dead Men Don't Vote. I just... I, I, you know, I thought that that trippy show was good, but it's not, it's not quite to the, the, to the point that yours is. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to tell us about it. Yeah, no, thanks. So, so it, it launches officially next week. We drop uh, season one, episode one on, on the 28th, I believe is our goal. Um, it, this is, this is a fun, tastic endeavor here to give a voice to the Trust the Vote project. So what we did was we got together, uh, some really whip smart election administration professionals who are part of the OSET team. Uh, and we wanted to create a, a forum to demystify elections so that people could walk away and walk into November really understanding the difference between an absentee ballot and a, va- and, a, and, a and a cast vote record. And they can understand why ballots don't travel to Spain. And, and we could delve into some of the controversies and whatnot. Um, I am humbled by the guest list that I see starting to grow 
um, for this thing because I, I I think you're right. I think I think uh, the folks in the marketing team uh, they did a good job coming up with a clever and somewhat provocative name. Um, but but we're we're going to have a lot of fun there. We're going to have a mailbag so people can send in their questions on I think the speak pipe. Um, we we want to take this thing on the road. Um, we just we just got some real real good talent behind it, and I'm very humbled by it. And it's and it's a lot of work. Boy, I had no idea what you guys go through to produce that trippy show. Um, so we're excited about it. Um, I'm really hoping we're going to have you on. Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. But I mean, the good news is that you, if you got the mailbag, as long as you don't have Alex being the one who who asked, <laughs> who tries to do the mailbag questions, you might actually get to some. Uh, uh, but but seriously, uh, look, uh, where do people go if they want to uh, if they want to do the twenty four dollars for the Trust the Vote project? Where do they go to? To find that trustthevote.org, the three words together, trustthevote.org. And there's a bright red button up there. It says, join us. Um, and, and the podcast is there, uh, too. Uh, you can cool. go to deadmendontvote.org. No apostrophe in the URL, please. Um, and, and or they could just go to trustthevote.org and click the podcast button either way. We'll put those in our show notes. Thanks, Greg, for being with us this week. And thanks, everyone, for listening to That Trippy Show. I think Alex will actually get to some questions sooner or later here in the next uh, next couple. You can find more about OSET's work at OSETinstitute.org. And we'll also include the links that uh, Greg talked about in the show, the Trust the Vote Project and his podcast, Dead Men Don't Vote. Again, Greg, thanks. No, thank you, Joe. And uh, we love the, the That Trippy Show. We'll be back uh, this Friday with another episode. Thanks all. Take care. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.